Good morning. Well, I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 6. I wanted to I wanted to go through the whole chapter, but I only uh, I was only able to get to verse 10. So we're going to read uh, Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 to 10. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train lifted, uh, filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the door, house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken away. Thy sin is perched. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom shall will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell the people, Hear ye indeed, and understand not, and see ye indeed, and perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and convert, and be healed. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we need your help to understand this. We're in a world that doesn't value you, so we need to learn who you are. We need to learn your holiness. We need to learn as well who we are. So we ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us your word and you would lead us as a church so that we could understand what your law is and, and how to follow it. We pray, Father, that we, we might send us a pastor who knows you, who is faithful to you, and is able to teach us these things. We thank you, Lord, that we have missions all around the world who their number one goal is to spread the word, the word which saves the lives of people. We thank you, Lord, that you have taken care of us. And we pray, Father, that you would just give us the wisdom and the faith to, to realize that you will never forsake us nor leave us, Lord. We thank you, Father, that we could pray to you for our physical trials, 
and the ailments that some of us are having. We pray, Father, that You would keep us, O Lord, keep us faithful knowing that You are in control. We pray, Father, that You would also make us spiritually well. Very important that we become spiritually well so that we would understand what You need of us, what You want of us, what we should be doing. We thank You, Lord, that the Bible guides us. We thank You, Lord, that You are there. We thank You, Lord, that You direct us. Please help me to tell people what You want them to hear. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, welcome, Michael. The Lord bless as you open the word to us this morning. Thank you. I keep trusting the Lord will help me not get choked up. (laughs) Uh, You don't really see it coming, right? (laughs) Uh, Okay, well, we're looking at Isaiah. Now, what am I doing here? And uh, I'm new to this. I don't know if you notice. I'm new to this. And for some reason, I felt compelled, even though I've been, I've been a Christian for 20, over 20 years, and I've known Isaiah a little bit here and there, and I've studied him, and we had a pastor that went through a whole series on him, and I've done my share of looking at Isaiah. So I thought maybe I would decide to make a message about it. Whew, that was a mistake. <laughs> Isaiah is a lot more complicated than you first see. Um, now, I have spent 20 years looking at it, and I promise you I spent a couple hours a day for the last couple months looking at it. So I assure you, I've not wasted my time on this, and I can tell you something about it. But I found myself as I was putting it together, like a kid in the candy store. But I had too many options, too many good things to talk about. And how do you talk about this book? I mean, I have a book at home um, that um, he talks about Isaiah. It's a 700-page book, and he just covers the first half of Isaiah. So here I am, I'm going to come up here, and um, by the way, I'm wasting a lot of time talking to you right now. But anyway, I, I'm going to come up and try to explain to you what I thought I saw in Isaiah and make make it make sense. So I promise you I spent hours doing this, no matter what it sounds like. (laughs) Anyway, is this kind of like, I don't know if you were a kid when you were, um, did you ever have a TV where you didn't have, I didn't have cable all my life. I was very poor. And um, for some reason on the TV, the antenna would always break off, right? I don't know, the little screw would fall out or something. So you end up, what, using a coat hanger, right? And, and somehow you try to screw that to the back of the TV, and now you've got to adjust it and whatnot, and you're constantly moving it, and the hockey game's on, and you want to see what's going on. And so you're there with your friend, and you're getting him to hold on to it, because everyone, you've got to take turns now. You've got to touch the antenna, because that's how you get a clear picture. Or you've got to sit in a certain part of the room, or, or something. You're always adjusting, right? Well, that's what I found myself doing in the last couple of weeks, just trying to figure out how to navigate through this whole thing and make it sound clear. And by the way, I'll warn you now that sometimes I might say Uzziah when I mean Isaiah, and I might say Isaiah when I mean Uzziah. Can you understand why? Um, We'll see what happens, though. 
And so, there you go. Now, a quick, quick little uh, something to say about the book of Isaiah. Um, there's a lot of ways to summarize it, and I promise you that I'm not going to cover it all. But what I saw was a king, a servant, and a conqueror being written about in this book. I also saw the people of God in the present time when Isaiah lived, and he also talked about the people in the future, the people of God, uh, the nation of, of Judah. I also saw, in, especially in our text, a call to service as well. Um, Isaiah can be summed up in a way maybe of warnings and also a sprinkling of hope. And Isaiah will make you ask the question, who should I trust? And that's the question you should ask yourself. Should I trust in the men of this world, the leaders of this world? Should I trust in myself or should I trust in God? That's what Isaiah is talking about. And if you read Isaiah and you start at the beginning, you see that there's four kings that he covers. Uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And the idea is that these kings can be compared to this king that will come. This great king, servant, conqueror. They can be compared to him, but more they can be a contrast to him, and that's what they are. And you see, what Isaiah wants you to do is look at these kings and see the contrast. And for example, if you were to look up in the sky and look at the stars, you can see the stars a lot better because the sky is black, right? So that's kind of the idea what Isaiah wants you to see. He wants you to see the contrast to this king that is to come. Now, get my notes in order here. The holiness of God is what we titled it. And um, we're going to talk about Isaiah and see what he thought of the holiness of God. Well, Isaiah lived in Judah at the time. It was the time when uh, the nation of Israel had split into two after the time of David and Solomon and so forth. And he lived in a time when King Uzziah reigned. And you could probably rank King Uzziah as one of the, the top five kings of Israel. Um, so he lived in this time. And Isaiah, to describe him, you can describe him as being educated and prominent, a very wise man, a theologian or something like that. But I think you've got to also see him as a man who is just like you or me. And I think that's the idea that Isaiah has behind when he's writing Isaiah. He wants you to see yourself like him. So now you've got to put yourself in his shoes. Chapter 6, he sees God in a vision. Now this is not something that he sees every weekend or something. This is a first time thing for any of us we would feel the same way as Isaiah felt when he saw God. There are historical events in history, and I just want you to get this in perspective. The person that invented the wheel, or maybe uh, great conquerors, Alexander the Great, or maybe uh, Christopher Columbus who came and discovered America, which was already discovered, but anyway. Or the moon landing, those great events 
Well, I'm here to suggest to you they pale in comparison to this meeting Isaiah has with God. Because eventually Isaiah writes the book of Isaiah, and we all get to benefit from it. But here in Isaiah's time, this is a life-changing turning point for Isaiah. Isaiah, before this vision, now let's walk in Isaiah's shoes just for a bit. Before this vision, Isaiah probably looked at life the same as everyone else did. He said, you know, we're the people of God. We're, we live in a, a, a kingdom of Ju- Judah that is uh, prosperous and secure, and we have all the blessings. You know, our conclusion, my conclusion, is that God is probably pleased with us. Look at all this peace and prosperity. After all, Uzziah was reigning at the time that he had, uh, right before this vision. And Uzziah reigned for 52 years. That's a long time. King Uzziah gave the people security. He gave them technology and riches. Food whenever they wanted. They had abundance of everything. In fact, if you read Second Chronicles chapter 26, there's a note there that talks about I think it's the Ammonites. They paid Israel tribute money just so they wouldn't attack them. Like There was no threat of attack. They just said, you know, like, we just don't want you to attack us. We know you can just beat us. That's how strong they were. People were paying them. Don't attack us. So Isaiah, like everyone else around him, probably assumed that God was pleased. After all, he provided them a way that they can, you know, skirt around their sin. You just have to bring an animal and sacrifice it. right? Like today, we just have to go to church and, or, or maybe read the Bible once in a while or something like that. So Isaiah's conclusion must be that we're doing something right. We must be doing something right. And then Uzziah, Uzziah dies. Uzziah dies. And so, you know, the great leader dies. What are we going to do now? The people probably said, if the king is dead, what are we going to do now? Right? And they made that assumption probably, just like us. And what they failed to see is that it wasn't Uzziah that made the nation prosper. It was God. And they forgot all about him. And they gave Uzziah, like, I'm like I, Uzziah, the credit. And Uzziah, in the beginning as well, did walk with the Lord, walked in the fear of the Lord, And then Uzziah's prophet dies. And then he starts to think, maybe. Maybe I don't need the prophet anymore. Maybe maybe I don't need God anymore. Maybe I I know enough. I'm strong enough now. Look at the nation. Maybe I don't need to go to church anymore. Maybe I don't need to read my Bible. So Isaiah looks at the people of his nation probably says, yeah, we're a little rough around the edges. But all of us, all of us were Judeans, and we're not like those other nations, you know. Those other nations around us, who, by the way, were far worse than Israel at the time. We're not like them. Doesn't that sound familiar? Maybe a Canadian or American might say something like that. We're not perfect, but at least we're not like them still in the country. Maybe some churches are like that. You know, we're not perfect, but at least we're not like them. 
Do you see? This is the calm before the storm. Isaiah thought, yeah, everything's okay. But God, He didn't think that. He thought totally different. If you read chapter 5, God sings a song to Israel. A parable song. It's not a happy song either. It's a dirge. It's a funeral song. And in the song, the people are pictured as a, a vineyard. God loves this vineyard. God does everything to help it grow. Makes Judah prosper. And it produces nothing. Nothing but wild grapes. You know anything about wild grapes? They do, they're sour and they stink. They're really good for nothing. And there's nothing more that God could have done to help the nation. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choice vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. He looked that it should bring forth groups and it brought forth wild grapes. Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could I have done more to my vineyard for my vineyard that I have not done? Wherefore, when I look that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes? Do you think God is pleased with us? Our nation? Um... The way God sees it is you didn't prosper. You didn't prosper because of the security. You didn't prosper because of the security of Uzziah. You prospered because of me. And in response to the goodness of God shown to the nation, Instead of thankfulness, they, in chapter 1, verse 4, were sinful. A nation of evildoers, corrupt, laden with iniquity. In response to the goodness of God, Judah, you you have forsaken the Lord and provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger. In verse 10, he compares them with Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because they forsook the law of God. Chapter 1, verse 11. Instead of turning from their sin, they say, we can just make sacrifices for it and go on. We don't have to stop. We could just pray or go to church or, or, or go to synagogue. We'll just go through the motions. And God says, it's an abomination to me. You honor me with their lips says in Isaiah 29. And you know what else he says? He says, just stop with the fake oblations. Stop with the fake worship. <sighs> You're just paying lip service. And in conclusion, chapter 1, verse 15, he says, 
And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourself, he says. And Judah eventually will be destroyed. He looked on Judah and he did not find justice. All he found was oppression. And he gives reasons as well in chapter 5. He gives reasons why God is not pleased. Quickly, I'm going to go through this very fast. Um, wealth and possessions. They're consumed with the wealth and possessions around them. You see them drinking in verse 18. You see them openly sinning, not caring who sees their sin. You see them calling evil good and good evil in verse 20. 21, they're wise in their own eyes. They don't take God's counsel anymore. Verse 22, they know more about mixing. It's very specific, but they know more about mixing drinks than they know about God. Look at verse 8 real quickly in chapter 5. It says, Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place, that there may be place alone in the midst of the earth. They, they're, they're gathering their wealth and they're building up their, 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 the things in this world. And you know what? They're going to amount to nothing. Those things that they're gathering. Nothing. And even to think like the people that would pour in everything to pursue the obtaining of the possessions and maybe even the prestige of the people around them trying to get a piece of the pie, trying to get some notoriety, right? Everything, everyone worked so hard to accomplish back then, 2,700 years ago. What does it mean now? Nothing. It's... It's in fact, we can look, it's mostly sand now. Every image that they portrayed in public, that they were worried about when people saw them, the honor and the glory that they looked for and the other people in their world, what does that matter now? It's nothing. Uh, The awards that they got, the good things that they did and said, without God, it's nothing. All the Nobel Prizes and the Stanley Cups, they're nothing. They're going to be nothing one day, and everything in Isaiah's, Isaiah's kingdom is nothing today, and in 27 years from now, everything today will be sand as well. And no one will care about what you did. You won't even be here. They could build statues for you. You're not going to be here. Why pour your energy into nothing? And they're just wasting their time. The year that Uzziah died, 740 B.C., he reigned 52 years. He got leprosy because he disobeyed God in the end. He was proud. During Uzziah's reign, though, the nation prospered. There was security. There was wealth. He walked with the Lord in the beginning. Everyone thought Uzziah was the reason. That was a big problem. They gave him the credit. You remember Jesus in chapter 6 with John? They come up to them and they say, after he fed the 5,000 people, they're like, Wow, what kind of sign are you going to show us to show us that you're from God? 
Just like Moses back then when he fed the people from, with manna from heaven. And Jesus corrects them and says, it wasn't Moses that fed them. It was God. It was your Father. My Father in heaven that gave them the manna. So back in Isaiah's time, they thought it was Isaiah. That's what, that's what they thought made Judah prosper. And you see what the, happened in chapter 5, verse 24. The second part, they cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Before Isaiah's vision, he thought the same. It was a terrible thing that happened to Isaiah, Uzziah. There we go. It was a terrible thing that happened to Uzziah, he thought. And he mourned. And, but overall, the nation is doing pretty good still. You know, Judah's not so bad. And I'm not so bad either. But that was a, a fantasy fake reality. And it was shattered when he saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. I promise you, at that time, right there, when Isaiah saw the holiness of God, he stopped thinking everything was okay. In fact, he says right away, woe is me, for I am undone, unclean. It struck him. I'm undone. You know what that translates into? I'm dead. I'm dead. And I can't stand in the presence of a pure, righteous, glorious God. He immediately realized that. You see, John fell down dead as well when he saw a vision of God. See, it would be kind of like the same thing as trying to take a match and light it with the sun. You know, you're going to go closer and closer and closer. It just can't be done. Everyone in the Bible that sees God has the same experience from being terrified to falling down dead. The brightness of His glory, God's glory, makes it impossible for you to enter into His presence. Immediately, Isaiah realizes this. And immediately, Isaiah realizes the kings of the earth fall far short of the glory of this real king. And his conclusion that he doesn't, his conclusion is that he doesn't even come close to fitting into this king's kingdom either. And so he, what was me? I don't even fit in here. He wakes up to realize that he should have never ever put his trust in King Uzziah for anything. And Isaiah also immediately realizes he's a rebel who has committed treason against this king. This king who is holy, holy, holy. You know, the attributes of God, there's never a time where the attributes of God are mentioned three times. And the reason why they're mentioned three times is for emphasis. You mentioned something twice, it's for emphasis. You mentioned it for three times, now you're really trying to emphasize something. 
And if you don't know who God is, and you don't know anything about Him, this is a great place to start. Understand that He is holy. And what holy means is that He is set apart. He is the Creator. You are the creation. He knows you don't. He's sacred, which demands our attention and respect. Solomon wrote Proverbs 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not on thine own understanding. So Isaiah sees God and says, I'm done, done. I'm dead. In other words, it's almost like if you were in that spaceship on on the way to the sun to light your match, you'd probably feel about the same thing. I'm done. I'm dead. And the most amazing thing happens to Isaiah at this point when he believes that it's the end. Verse 6, chapter 6. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this is, hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Forgiven. I bet you he didn't expect that. What did he do to be forgiven? Did you see it? It's the same thing that Paul addresses. He realized, just like Paul, when he writes Romans in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all of sin have come short of the glory of God. And he realizes his sin, and then he sees the amazing forgiveness of God. And that's when he gets forgiven. You see? When he realizes his sin. And this is the way it is for everyone. You might think that you're all that out there. Compare yourself with everybody else. But compare yourself to God? Put it mildly. You fall short. You're forgiven, Isaiah. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sins are purged. He realizes that. He has that happen when he realizes, woe is me, I am undone. So just to summarize, quickly here. Isaiah sees an amazing vision of God. He thinks that he's done for. A seraph touches his lips with a hot coal, and God forgives his sin. Isaiah's left, I imagine, speechless and stunned at this point. And then... God speaks to him. Verse 8, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom, who, shall go, who will go for us? Now, I mean, if this is me, I'd probably have a moment of silence and then turn to one of the seraphims and say, Is he talking to me? 
But I suppose after, I don't know, there's no emphasis on how he said it, but I, I read it as when he says, then said I, he crouched away and said, send me? I don't know if there was much confidence in his voice at that point. But anyway, verse 9, the Lord says, Go and tell the people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. You know, he's, Isaiah, go out there, tell all the people my message. Man, nobody's going to believe you. No one's going to listen. Verse 10, he's going to make their heart, the heart of the people, fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and be converted and, and be healed. On top of it, Isaiah, they're going to be captivated by the lusts that are all around them, the lusts of their heart. They're not going to listen to you. They're going to stick their fingers in their ears. Uh, I I heard a lot of uh, different people speaking in the last couple months, and I don't remember who said this, and I don't remember who it's about, and, and I don't remember who told it, and, uh, and it's about basketball, and, and I don't know much about basketball. So there you go. I have a story for you. <laughs> anyway, it was a basketball player, and he was a good basketball player, and he wasn't as good to make the NBA, but he was good enough to become a coach. And he kind of he had a, a knack, and he loved basketball. And he thought, you know what? I bet you if I go to the inner city where everyone's playing basketball, that's all they do is play basketball. And the inner city, uh, uh, some of them, that's all they do is play basketball. Maybe I'll find somebody that I can recruit and bring them to the NBA, you know, and find them. And he said that he went and he saw all of these young men and they were excellent basketball players. All of them had talent. More talent than he thought even himself but they were never going to make the NBA, he concluded. And the reason why is that they wouldn't be taught. They already thought that they knew it all. So if anybody would try to tell them some more, he wouldn't even hear them. It's tragic. And that's what God says to Isaiah, go tell the people, but they're not going to listen. And, you know, eventually, after a while, they're not even going to like you anymore. But you know what? Some will. Some will listen. Most of them will be carried away. Carried away by their sin. And we still see that happening today. And so... My question to you is, what gets you up in the morning? What do you think about the most? What moves you to do the things that you do? May I suggest that that would be your God? And that God will be gone one day too. Just last, I wanted to close with this thought. Um, the seraphim. The seraphim. 
My question is, why did they cover their face with their wings? They had six wings, right? They had two that covered their feet. I think that was because they were on holy ground or near holy ground. They had two that they were flying with. They had two that they covered their face with, right? And Real, on Thursday, uh, during Bible study, the prayer meeting, talked about Psalm 100. And if you remember the first couple of verses, my wife knows by heart. Um, it's roughly this, though. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, ye lands. Serve him with gladness and come before his presence with singing. And I looked up this word presence, and it's the word panim. That's the Hebrew word panim. Well, panim is used in different places in the Bible, but it's not always the word presence. Sometimes it's something else, right? But what the word does mean is you're in the presence of somebody, right? Well, I noticed, if you look in chapter 6, verse 2, the word face is panim. They cover their panim almost like restricting their vision so that they can't see the glory of God. They're restricting their presence in, the glory, in, the, in, the, in God's presence. They're restricting themselves to not look. And, and again, that word is also used in Acts 25 when Paul is, is saying, you can't accuse me of something uh, by, unless my accuser is standing here face to face with me. He can't accuse me. It's hearsay, right? He has to be here present, face to face. So that word was used there as well. Psalm 98. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of His countenance. Again, same word. Presence. Make a joyful noise. Be happy. You're going to walk in His presence. You see, if you're a Christian... That's the prize. We will be in the presence of God where we see a seraphim who, by the way, is made out of fire, but yet cannot look at God. He can't gaze upon Him. He has to cover His face. You know, the only one that I know, I can think of, that can... Be in the presence of God is Jesus? Because He's God, right? But any other created creature cannot be in the presence of God. There's a res- they're restricted. Heaven and earth, it seems. Look at uh, first, Second Corinthians chapter 5. I'll read it. I'll, I'll going to go there quick. I'm going to read it real quick. This is lack of time. Therefore, any man be in Christ. He is a new creature. Interesting. A new creature. What does this new creature do, though? Well, this new creature is reconciled to God. What does that mean? He's allowed to be in His presence. Interesting. Look at... To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, 
not imputing their trespasses unto them. You're forgiven, Isaiah, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. It's amazing. And if you're, you understand this, every religion in the world would call God transcendent. You know what that means? Too far away. You can't be in the presence of God. You can't reach God. They'd all say I was crazy to say that you could be in God's presence. And Paul is saying, but to us who are in Christ, we are one with Him. And we are eminent, which means we're close. If you, a Christian, have the Spirit, He's with you. Also, if you're a Christian, you, you have a covering. You know that? Like the seraphim that covered his face with the wings, we have a covering too. It's Christ. He's called our propitiation, which is our covering. See, but when we, it's a bit different because when we look at Christ, we are looking at God. You see? In heaven and on earth, being in the presence of God is, seems to be a very rare thing. It doesn't seem to be a privilege that everyone gets to have. Romans chapter 3. God prepares a place for us. I'll go there real quick and just read that. God prepares a place. But look at Romans chapter 3. If you know Romans at all, first three and a half chapters, he explains to us, he talks to us about how we are sinners and fallen short. And we're, we're, we're just, our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, feet swift to shed blood, on and on. And then he concludes in verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. And you know, every one of us, we're going to be in a sight one day, right? For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But look what he says. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, like Isaiah. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, this righteousness can be applied to you if you believe. For there is no difference. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And get this, being justified freely, there's no price, by His grace through the redemption that is in Him, Christ Jesus. And here's the part I wanted you to hear. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. Do you have faith that He died for you? Well, He'll become a propitiation on that day when you go to see God. He'll be a covering to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Propitiation for those who trust that He died for him, for them. He's their covering so that you might be able to enter into the presence of God. Look at the language again. 
this word uh, presence, right? Face. Look, I'll just say, mention real quickly, if you want to write this down, Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, there's this language where people are running from the, the face of Him that sits on the throne, and they're trying to hide under the rocks. They're trying to run from His presence, right? Rightly so. And in, 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 and you see it in Isaiah again, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 19, the language is the same. Um, just real quickly look at that. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 19. And they shall go into the holes and into the rocks and into the caves of the earth for the fear of the Lord, for the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake terribly the earth. When He comes, they're going to run. But then there are those that are covered in His blood. See? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, God, who commandeth the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We find the glory of God and we are able to enter into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. It's in the Spirit. You have the Spirit today? You're with Him. You're in His presence. (sighs) My time is gone. But if you want to know more, and you want to be in the presence of God, read this book. It's fascinating. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Lord, thank You, Lord, that You've decided that You would reveal Yourself to us. Please help us with Your Spirit and guide us with Your truth. Thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.